Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. For more than a century, the fantasy of the Caribbean as a tropical paradise full of sensual pleasures has helped lure leisure travelers from the global north. Women have played a central role in creating that fantasy, both as objects of desire and as active participants in the business of promoting it. Understanding this complex dynamic sheds light on both the economic history of the region and on the interplay between gender, commerce, and regional identity. Our guest today is Elizabeth Manley, Associate and Kellogg Endowed Professor of History at Xavier University of Louisiana, where her research considers the history of the Caribbean and Latin America, gender and women's studies, sexuality, and transnational politics. As a fellow at the National Humanities Center this year, Beth has been working on a new book, tentatively titled Imagining the Tropics, Women, Tourism, and Caribbean Island Fantasy, 1890 to 1980. Welcome, Beth. So great to be here. Thanks, Robert. So the time period that you're looking at is 1890s, roughly, to 1980. Why that time period? Well, I wanted to start this study at a period that kind of made sense in a in terms of the proliferation of women's travel writing about their region. And for me, when I started doing the research into this topic, I realized that that was a moment in which a lot more, um, there were definitely some writings from women previous to that, but they started to kind of explode at that period. And I'm not sure I have an exact precise answer to why they started to be more prevalent. But I think that through the century, women had been traveling to the region and had been writing about their experiences and encouraging others to do the same. And so you see a larger corpus of work by women writing about their time cruising the Caribbean, if you will. And the end point of the study, 1980, is there because that's really when the kind of mass tourism all-inclusive resort model takes off. And I wanted to kind of bring the study to there, but stop at that point. So we're talking about this construction of this Caribbean fantasy through the labors, as well as the embodied marketing of women in the industry of pleasure travel. And you're talking about how women function both as agents and objects in the construction of that fantasy. Let's start with uh, how women function as active agents. How does that take place? This is something that really surprised me in my research because I started this project trying to understand the realities of sex tourism in the region. And I was really particularly interested in women who traveled to the region for sex or romance. But I'm not an anthropologist, and I wanted to try to find kind of historical roots for this phenomenon. And so the project began with this kind of casting about in the archives, right, and and just trying to figure out how this phenomenon came to be, right, the idea of how Stella got her groove back in, in Jamaica. And what I kept coming across... Um, really across that period of study, 1890 to 1980, was women very much involved in the making of hospitality, right? They were opening inns and running hotels. They were working in 
advertising or starting magazines to promote Caribbean vacation. They were serving as flight attendants in ways that you kind of more expect their labors to be in service. But they were all over the industry. And and that began with the very first travelogues that I found in the 1890s of women not just writing about their experience from a kind of individual, I did this sort of perspective, but actually creating a template for other women and men to follow them and and really being clear in their instructions. And so I wanted to trace out that narrative and find out how how did this come to be? And so what I really started seeing in that in all that material was that tourism is an industry of care, right? It's about caring for others when they come to visit. And women in particularly in the you know the earliest years of tourism in the 20s, 30s, 40s were really interested in serving in that capacity as caregivers, as welcomers. A really good example from Trinidad in the early 1930s is a group of women came together and told the Trinidadian um, local government and the British Crown basically that they needed a welcoming committee and the Crown wasn't terribly interested and the you know colonial governance were said go ahead you can do that yeah you know that's fine and the women start to have this committee and they went, went down to the port and they had a table and they had materials for people that came in it wasn't a huge number of visitors at that time but it was enough and about 10 years later, the Crown realizes how important a service that this is. They say thank you to the women, and they reconstitute the board with a bunch of men. <laughs> so, so you have women as tourists, women as hospitality providers. You have foreign women and local women. You have women as travelers, women as hosts women as advertising subjects and objects. You have industry agents and women as an audience also. So talk a little bit about those dichotomies and how they converge and how they diverge as well. Well, you know, I, I just kind of gave you a little a taste of those women working as agents. And one of the things that I came to kind of see in the materials that they were producing promoting travel to the Caribbean was often placing women in the ads, right? As ads start to become more graphic, more colorful, including illustrations, often I was seeing women. And I think we've made assumptions that this industry is an industry of, of male producers, right? And so I started to kind of rethink these ads as, what if these ads are produced by women, right? Placing women in the ad is a way to induce other women to see themselves as those travelers, right? Coming to these beaches, experiencing these foreign or different or new world experiences. And so kind of placing a different lens on that, you can see the development of the advertisement for the Caribbean in a, in a different way. Um, but you also, it forces you to begin thinking about women as travelers, right? And so then I'm kind of moving down this road to try to understand when travel starts to become possible for more than just elite women, right? In the, in the end of the 19th century, you see a lot of elite women. But by the 30s and 40s, you're starting to see um, women traveling independently from the middle and working classes even, and a lot of them, if they weren't independent, were making the decisions. The New York Times in the early 30s, in fact, admits that women are making the majority of decisions about vacation across the United States. 
Right? So they're either going by themselves, as a number of young, um, early 20s women would do, sometimes even quitting their jobs to you know, take that trip to Cuba, and also in that kind of familial setting where they're choosing where they would go as a family or you know, sort of as, as a, just a couple. One of the points you're making is that the idea of tourism, the fantasy of tourism, is not engineered strictly from the top down. There's also a bottom-up sensibility involved there. Can you kind of give us a, a specific example, a kind of case study in that? Yeah, I mean, I think the the assumption that we generally make is that, that decisions about tourism come from you know, tourism boards, they come from multinational corporations, and they are directed, you know, kind of from this top level. And really looking into the roots of the industry, you start to see that drivers come from all over. Um, and one of the, the examples that I really love is looking at Montego Bay in Jamaica, which is really one of the first kind of resort areas in the Caribbean. And Montego Bay began to be a place initially for the elite in the 20s, in the 1920s. And the three first luxury hotels that were built in that area were owned, operated, and run on a daily basis by women, right? Um, the Ethel Hart, the Casablanca, and the Staffordshire hotels were all run by Jamaican women, right? Elite Jamaican women, but Jamaican women nonetheless. And so all of a sudden, the kind of Jamaican government starts paying attention, right, to how important this space is. The Jamaica Gleaner is then, you know, kind of providing a daily coverage of what's happening on the North Shore. And these women are frequently part of that, you know, kind of gossip column thing. And the more that tourism develops, the more kind of attention is paid to these women and what they do, right? And so their form of hospitality, the way in which they welcome guests, the ways in which they really got the elite of the elite, right, including a number of writers and former agents of, of the British government, let's just say, you know, the creator of James Bond, for example, um, how they did that becomes a model for the government and the ways in which they continue to move forward. And so it's not always likely, right, where inspiration, where modeling, where directions for the industry will come from. Um, and it's often, you know, from the bottom, from women just starting small businesses in the, you know, area in which they come from. A lot of your work is, is looking at this kind of escapist fantasy as, as, as centered on women's bodies as this kind of exoticized uh, object of desire that are clearly objectified. How does the whole notion, you mentioned earlier, family vacation and the prevalence of, of the vacation being a family vacation, how does that fit? I think that really this image of objectification of women comes into play in the second half of the, of the 20th century, right? It isn't a sort of constant, always been there presence part of tourism, right? It is something that developed out of the history of tourism itself. And so it doesn't begin to become present. And part of it is that, in fact, it is made by the women that are involved in, in that, um, as I was mentioning, kind of placing themselves in that, and women being present in spaces of service, like as flight attendants, right? But I think it is only one component of the way in which the Caribbean gets marketed, right? I think it is a very strong component 
currently, you know, and it sort of became this very prevalent part of the way that we understand and see the Caribbean. But it wasn't always that way. And it's not the only way that the Caribbean is sold to the global north. And I think one of the core ideas that continues to play into the way that the region is marketed to potential travelers is as a place in which you can go and forget your worries. In the 1890s, this was escaping, you know, the rigors of a, a, a northern winter and a difficult, you know, stressful life. But that continues to be one of the threads that we use to talk about the Caribbean, right, as this place in which you can forget your worries, you can kind of relax in this slower pace of life, all of these things embedded in ideas about their region as less productive, right, as lazy, as not having a kind of northern work ethic. And we don't, we don't see those long roots of that discourse. But they're there, right? And they go back to these kind of deeply held prejudices that we have about the places and people of of the region. But they also allow for a space in which, you know, families can go and and vacation, particularly now in the age of the all-inclusive resort, right, where not only are you encouraged to forget everything that is worrying you kind of from your life in a a quote-unquote more civilized place, but you're also every need is fulfilled in the immediate surroundings, right? You do not have to go anywhere to have everything you could possibly need. Yeah, so it's really interesting that that you're kind of talking about this emergence of a, a global mobility, but it's toward this fantastical, primitive, sexualized place of consumption. How does this narrative of fantasy oscillate between these kind of oppositions? I think the way in which the Caribbean has always been scripted for travelers has been around contradictions, right? That it is multiple things at once, right? And I think when you kind of look at the 1890s, uh, the end of the century, you see the kind of contradiction between pleasure and danger, right? And this is a place that you can kind of get both of those at the same time, and they sort of coexist. And as we move into the 20th century, those contradictions change, right? And the kind of primitive yet safe, right? The the primitive yet civilized are kind of coming to coexist. And if you look at the immediate World War II period, the most prevalent contradiction that you see in the discussions of the region are of both old world and new. That it has all of the primitive elements of this kind of less civilized, and I'm you know sort of using quotes here, as well as all of the rich history of the old world, right? And so valuing the the quote-unquote primitive while also having all the amenities that you could possibly need at your fingertips. Uh, Lou Perez talks about this in terms of Cuba, right, in the the pre-revolutionary period. It was a space in which people could feel the kind of the exotic, the primitive, the, the license of vice, but could also have the modern amenities of a U.S. trained waiter and a U.S. structured hotel and all of the other things that would allow them to feel that it wasn't, it was exotic, but not too exotic. And you also have in the Caribbean, as your project demonstrates this, you have national identities that are built around fantasy. 
and their advertising campaigns that project those fantasies. Absolutely. So can you tell us what, what's one of the most compelling advertising campaigns for you or, or what's a great example of an advertising campaign that does that? Over the span of this period and sort of watching each and every one of these places develop different campaigns that have similar strains, it's hard for me to pull a favorite or one that is the most illustrative, but I spent a lot of time looking at the work of the Jamaican Tourism Board in the 60s and 70s following independence, and I think some of the most interesting stories come from that uh, early campaign, early independence campaign in Jamaica. They were really invested in the idea of selling tourism as a way to fuel the new nation. They start a new airline, Air Jamaica, right? And they really go full in on promoting tourism as a key part of the economy, so much so that they hire a New York-based advertising firm, Doyle, Dane, and Bernbach, who ran the Volkswagen campaign that everyone knew to do their campaign. And you would probably recognize these ads that had in big, bold, black letters at the top, Jamaica, right? And there was a series of different campaigns within um, what DDB was doing for them. But the one that is kind of most commonly recognized is of a woman stepping out of the water wearing a Jamaica t-shirt that is wet, and it goes on to provide text about how the women of Jamaica create the hospitality that makes it such a wonderful place to visit. The irony of this ad campaign is that the woman that is starring in this image that many, many, many people know was not even Jamaican. Her name was Sintra Barrington Bronte, and she was Trinidadian. That's great. That's great. So. I mean, the project, the time period that you're dealing with, as we know, stops around 1980. But I wonder if you could reflect a bit on some contemporary changes that feminize this narrative, this fantasy. I, you mentioned how Stella gets her groove back. Anything else you want to elaborate on? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of my questions starting this project was how does female sex tourism become a thing, right? How does Stella realize that she can go to Jamaica to get her groove back? And I think one of the answers to that question lies in the fact that women were creating this industry. So as we continue to move into the late 20th century, we are both seeing women building empires. There's an example of a woman in Bahamas named Nettie Simonette who starts as a bookkeeper for a hotel and, and ends up building her own kind of mini empire in the Bahamas around tourism. But we're also seeing this massive takeover of the industry by men, by massive corporations, by Conrad Hilton, by Pan Am, by you know these big multinationals, and women then becoming the objects of that set of campaigns and, and justifications for Caribbean vacation. But I think embedded in the industry is that idea of hospitality that women built and grew throughout it. And I think it's part of the reason why women come to see the space as a, a place, a possibility of romance, right? And romance kind of gets baked in to that tourism narrative in the 50s and 60s, right? And where it's a, a place that not only can you go and relax, but that there's a certain kind of romance, whether that be, you know, a kind of relationship romance or some other kind of romance with the space, with the, the environment, that that starts to also be 
built in to the way the stories that get told about the region, particularly in that Cold War era, that this is a place kind of removed from the, the rigors of the Cold War, that make it possible for the kinds of sex tourism to develop. I mean, there's obviously sort of economic and other kinds of political narratives that also make that sex tourism reality possible. Um, but I think that there is something in the fact that this was a women's industry, that women were major drivers in it, it connects it to that first question that, that I had about, about the project. In conclusion, talk to us a little bit about how you go about researching this project, your kind of research methodology, and your kind of personal attraction to this project. I mean, what, what compelled you to look into uh, the subject other than that you get to go to beautiful places and, and, uh, and would our audience suspect that you're just hanging out on the beach and having a good time? I mean, what else, what else is involved here? Well, I mean, that is the irony, I think, when, you know, you do research in the Caribbean, it's, of course, everyone thinks it's, you know, you maybe are just going down to, you know, be on the beach. But in fact, it's some of the hardest research I've ever done, right? It's it's trying to find voices in a narrative that have been, a narrative that has been constructed to keep these voices out. A narrative that has become super masculinized that, you know, women almost don't exist in. And then as you start digging, you realize that they're present. Um, I began the project kind of working in archives in Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, and Jamaica, and really just kind of casting about for anything that had to do with tourism and trying to figure out how the industry worked. I was compelled by it because the year that I spent doing research for my first book in the Dominican Republic, I was overwhelmed. I, I knew that tourism was a major driver of the economy, but at this point in the early 2000s, it was everything. It was everywhere. And it mandated so many decisions, right, about life on the islands. And so I knew that at some point I wanted to investigate it somehow, right? And as a, as a historian of women and gender, I think it, it is logical that I ended up, right, kind of seeing women in the history of tourism. But I am convinced, truly, that they, they were the drivers of this industry. And I wanted to figure out how that was, and I had to go to, I've had to go to lots of different archives, right? And I've drawn on tons of different published sources, right, beginning with these travelogues at the turn of the century, but also up through the 20th, looking at women-authored travel guides, of which there were many. In one of the first archives I looked at in Puerto Rico, the Luis Munoz Marin Foundation, I found this one magazine called the Caribbean Vacation Lands. And I found out that the editor was this woman named Helen Lowe Abel, who had moved to the Virgin Islands in the 40s after basically, you know, kind of losing her place in the in the newspaper industry after men came back from World War II, sets up shop there and starts this magazine that is a, a tourism guide put out annually for anyone who wants to vacation in the region. And it's one of the first region-wide Caribbean vacation publications. And I have traced this woman all over the world and yonder. <laughs> right? Like, And I'm still looking for the pieces of her life. Women don't typically put their materials in archives. Right? They don't typically see their, their life's production as valuable of that. Right? I have a few 
women whose work I found sort of archived sometimes with their partners, um, as is the case of Poppy Cannon White, whose Walter White was her husband. Her materials are at Yale, but most of the other women that I'm looking at here, their materials are, are scattered. And so I've really just pulled from all these different archives to create, in some ways, a new archive, a, a new archive that that tries to understand the role of women in developing Caribbean tourism. And so it, it's really a very transnational story, and it's one that I hope kind of gives voice to both a collective of women, but some of them individually, too, because they're so fascinating to me in the work that they did. What a fantastic project, and what a great answer also. And I really like the way this uh, you're complicating the whole notion of, of an industry of care in such a caring way. Thank you, Elizabeth Manley, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.